Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Simon Milov, a founding faculty member of the Buck Institute, the first author of a landmark paper in aging, founding co-editor of Aging Cell, now founder and CEO of Giro State Alpha. Welcome, Simon, to the Deep Tech Show. I'm really happy to have you here. It's going to be an amazing conversation, I'm sure, because who doesn't want to live a lot and healthy? What you are doing is going to help all of us to live better lives. So it's a really interesting, and I really appreciate the work you are doing. So welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So to start, I would like to you to tell us a little bit about how your company started, a little bit about the background and the story of the company, how you guys started. So the three founders of the company, myself, uh, Mark Lukanik, uh, Chief uh, Technical Officer and our Technology Officer, and um, Gordon Lithgow, who's Vice President of the Buck Institute, uh, have been working in the biology of aging as researchers for whew, many decades now. And um, one of the frustrating things about being academics in aging research is it's quite slow. It's not something which you can move very fast and using that sort of uh, phrasing from Google, which, what is it, move fast and break things, you know. <laughs> you can't do that in academia. You're supposed to move real slow and test hypotheses very carefully, you know, one aspect at a time. You can't make big leaps of logic or intuition and you, you just can't move fast. It's a very incremental process. Now, academic science, as a result, is very methodical and somewhat, you know, glacial in nature. And every now and then you'll get breakthroughs, which is great when it happens, but they don't happen that often. And as a result, uh, you can get frustrated by the pace of research in your own field. And so we've been working in this field for, as I said, several decades. We're pretty good at, um, you know, succeeding as academics in a general sense. But, you know, I think each of the co-founders had an appetite for doing something more, something a little bit faster from a therapeutic perspective. Because ultimately, I think certainly from my perspective, I've always been interested in trying to improve function as you get older. And I've been very interested in sort of categorizing, measuring functional decline in a preclinical model like the mouse just as a consequence of aging. And that's been really interesting, just looking at, at the steady decline in function of multiple different organ systems and things of that nature. And human beings are exactly the same as you know, many of the laboratory models which we study. There's a steady decline in function, actually from your mid-20s, believe it or not. One thing that it's interesting about you guys tracking this problem of aging is that when do you think that we started shifting on the scientific community this idea of aging as just an inevitable thing that's going to happen to us to a treatable problem? Because I think that most people still don't see aging as a problem to be solved, just like how life is. So when does this perception change in the academic? That's a great question. I've got a personal anecdote which will help answer that and illustrate how seismic that shift has been over the last, you know, 20 plus years. So when I was a postdoc in the 90s, you know, I was at a at an aging meeting where Gordon, who I also postdoc with my co-founder, Gerostate Alpha, um, we were presenting these posters at the meeting and we had a Nobel Prize winner come up to the poster 
and say, um, what are you guys working on here? And we, we started to tell them, well, we're working on the genetics of aging. You know, we've got this single gene mutation, mutation which can extend the lifespan of this nematode worm. And, you know, we're hoping it'll provide information about aging biology and so forth. He said, you're wasting your time on that. That is a complete waste of time. Everyone knows aging is just accumulated collection of, of mistakes. And um, I advise you to get out of that lab. That lab is dead and it just, you know, there's no point in doing anything in this area. Just move on. You'll save yourselves a, a great deal of embarrassment. Anyway, about 10 years later, you know, with many covers of, um, you know, nature and science devoted to aging biology, clearly that Nobel Prize winner was out of step. He didn't know what was the future in terms of like uh, one of the now the hottest areas of biology. I mean, there's no question that aging biology in 2021 is driving um, many large initiatives. You only have to look at uh, a very big um, cell mapping initiative, which has come out of the NIH, which is to map senescent cells in most tissues of the body. This is a large program which cuts across multiple institutes in the NIH, and it's focused on identifying senescent cells in the human body and whether or not you can develop approaches to get rid of them and improve function. So that sort of initiative wouldn't happen if uh, aging biology is, is a fringe science. It's mainstream science. So there's a general recognition at this point in our history that aging is a tractable problem. It's something you can at least fix in part, if not fully. We, we haven't been able to fix it fully yet in, in any model organism. But there's a hope there based upon hard data that we can therapeutically treat many different animal models with either genetic approaches or pharmacological approaches, which improve function as the animals get older and oftentimes increase lifespan at the mean and maximum level. So this is no longer science fiction in 2021. That sea change happened around, I would say, generally speaking, around the early 2000s that it became apparent that this was a, a real field and that aging was just another facet of biology which could be tweaked and altered through um, you know logical scientific approaches yeah i think that right now like aging and the whole size of aging it's i would say that's the most mainstream in the academic circles and maybe some technology investors as well what about like mainstream of the mainstream people in general. I think that most people would not imagine that aging as a treatable thing or a thing that we could have a way of doing it. How long do you think that the, the, the rest of us outside the academy would catch up? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think um, in general, the, the population at large is unaware of how fast the science has been moving in this area. They often think that, uh, you know, the ability to, to alter mean and maximum lifespan, for example, in mice, has not yet been done. We've been doing it routinely in mice since, for sure, um, the early 2000s. So, you know, that actual reality has yet to translate to the human population. And I don't think that's a terrible thing. I think oftentimes, you know, the, these things lag by decades in terms of common awareness. And one of the ways which I think that will be blown wide open is a success story in the human sense. Now, we don't have that yet, but once you have a successful clinical trial based upon breakthroughs in the biology of aging, then the general public will get very interested in this, and it could well drive a lot more funding in the area and so forth. And there are many clinical trials underway at present now, which are based upon fundamental breakthroughs in discoveries in the biology of aging. Those are all being undertaken by companies, small, big, large companies, 
And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be an exciting next five years because I'm very confident that we will have a success story. Someone is going to have a success story. I, I can't say who it's going to be. Not that I know who it's going to be. <laughs> I just don't know who's going to have that success or what biology is going to be the first success story out of the gate. But for sure, someone is going to manipulate some fundamental aspect of the biology of aging. There's going to be a tangible benefit to a population of human beings who are being treated with something. And that is going to open the floodgates of imagination and funding for more research in this area. Because all of a sudden, that horizon, which has always been in place for human beings of, you know, four score years and 10 or whatever you want to say in terms of common mythology, is going to start receding that horizon is going to start going away. And, you know, maybe it'll be an infinite horizon. That's, you know, science fiction at best uh, and, and maybe reasonable speculation or extrapolation. What is your vision for the next 10 years? Like, if you guys succeed, if Giro State succeed and everything you guys are planning, what changed in 10 years? Like, what is the impact that we're going to see from you guys? That's a, you know, a $64 trillion question, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, aging is a very unique problem in terms of pharmaceuticals because you're not talking about, you know, some small market. You're talking about everyone on the face of the planet is going to want that product. And it's not just that it is a quality of life enhancement product. It's not like a slightly better computer or a slightly better TV or a slightly better phone. You're talking about improving everyone's health on the planet. One thing which is very difficult to visualize when you're younger, let's say younger than 40 years of age, is that your quality of life is dramatically impacted by your day-to-day -day health. You just take it for granted if you're under 40 that this is how you're always going to be. But that's not the case. And as you get older and older, you, slowly there will be um, a series of healthcare problems which will start to make a dent in your consciousness that you're not actually immortal. <laughs> yeah. You can't keep going forever and that you're going to have to live with this condition Or maybe if you're unlucky enough, it'll be a fatal condition and you have to adjust your, your thinking very rapidly and come to grips with the fact that, you, you know, you, you're not going to be around for that much longer. This is something which most people go through as they go through the arc of their life. And oftentimes you don't think about it at all under the age of 40. But once a therapy is available which can do something tangibly to lifespan or more sort of um, incrementally health span, you're going to be interested in that. You're going to want to have a piece of that. And I think that the best case scenario for Gerostate Alpha in a 10-year timeframe is that we have multiple therapeutics addressing different aspects of aging and some sort of combinatorial therapy is available, which not just improves your health marginally, like running three times a week or something like that, but actually slows down or even reverses different aspects of the biology of aging. So that, that would be the best case scenario for us because the worst case scenario is just, you know, we don't have to talk about the worst case scenario. I think that another thing that most people don't think about when you're talking about like lifespan, drugs for aging, is that it's not only about living more, it's about living better as well as you get old, right? right? right. It's improving your life conditions and so that you can take more from life as you go instead of just declining. So this is it's another thing that I find 
really interesting that the two are combined together. It's like living longer and better, not just living longer for the sake of living longer with a lot of pain. Yeah, I, I mean, we often get asked about that. And again, that tends to be a sort of a young person's perspective is like mm -hmm. they think that if you're living longer, you're going to be living with a poorer quality of life. That's not what anyone is uh, developing uh, therapies for. What the overwhelming uh, majority of folks who are investigating, you know, the, the possibility of, of developing therapeutics for aging is they're focused on the idea that you'll improve health span concomitant with lifespan extension. You know, there's some possibility you might just improve health span and then you fall off a cliff and you basically die really quick without any infirmity. But that, like in terms of model organisms, that's not what happens. What happens when you manipulate model organisms' lifespan is generally if you're affecting some fundamental process of aging, you're improving both health span and lifespan. So maximum lifespan tends to be increased in conjunction with health span. So there's a very little bit of evidence indicating that maybe you can uncouple those in some circumstances, but it's not particularly well researched at this point and there's a real lack of data in that regard. And what is the difference from the solution you are proposing and working on from what's elsewhere? Like what, what are your guys' unique perspective or unique take on this? We like to say that we have a unique prism to focus on aging as a target. This is language which has been co-opted by many companies in this space saying that we focus on aging, aging is our target. But when you actually look at the approaches by many of these companies to identify pathways or particular targets which might be involved in lifespan limitation, they're not actually identified in the first place by focusing on aging. They're a consequence of aging or something like that. So what does that mean to target aging? When you think about it from biological terms, aging is a phenotype. And so what we're doing in our approach is we're looking at that phenotype and saying, How can we modify that phenotype so it's beneficial? Now, when you drill down a little bit further, mechanically, what that means is you're extending lifespan and therefore you know you're affecting aging because if you can't extend lifespan, then whatever it is you're targeting is not really germane to aging. It might be germane to some disease process of aging, but it might not be germane to the underlying process which drives longevity and lifespan limitation in general. So we've developed a platform which has at its front end the ability to target aging by virtue of the fact that all of the molecules we screen and we believe are successful are extending lifespan in a simple model organism. Now, that simple model organism is Cena um, abditis, and we use multiple species and strains to help de-risk that. And then we further de-risk the hits which extend lifespan in that model system um, by looking at toxicity in mammalian cell lines and so forth. And then ultimately, we take the best of those hits and we put them into mice and see if we can slow down the functional decline associated with aging and ultimately even whether or not they extend lifespan. So we've validated all aspects of this platform and um, that's what differentiates us. We have a real practical way of saying that we're targeting aging. The molecules which we identify have real potential for improving health span and lifespan based upon the platform's data. And it's not theoretical, it's not done in a computer, it's not done from looking at some epidemiological database and, and associating you know, gene loci with lifespan and, and, and so forth. It's done by actually screening molecules with their efficacy and extending lifespan 
and then relying on the conservation of evolutionary biology for relevance in different model systems like the mouse. And what's the biggest technical challenges that you guys face with this? So the biggest technological challenge, I would say, is scaling. So we, we've been able to scale it now so that we can do about 200,000 compounds a year. But we have a, a, like a little, I would say, it's a practical limitation in getting up to, say, a million compounds a year. Uh, we believe that the best interventions to slow aging have yet to be discovered. We think actually we only really scratched the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, identifying pathways which can robustly extend lifespan and prolong health span. We, we only have a handful of those in the public domain at this point in time. Probably the most well-known of those is the TOR pathway, which is targeted by rapamycin. And that, that can extend lifespan robustly in mice and, and, and nematodes and quite a few other species, but it also has been shown to be beneficial in improving health span, particularly in aged mice in multiple different tissues. But, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to get to five or six interventions which uh, can do that. So, you know, what remains to be discovered in this space? How plastic is the space? Is the space, you know, really, really broad? Is it very, very narrow? We don't yet know. And the only way you're going to really answer that question is to saturate that space with novel small molecules with which you can then explore whether or not you can do better than rapamycin. Do we think that rapamycin is the absolute best you can do? I mean, in mice, rapamycin can extend lifespan by about 30%, which is a pretty huge effect, actually. I mean, you can imagine if you were to release a drug in human beings and say, oh, by the way, if you take this, your lifespan is going to go up by 30% and all your health is going to improve. So that's kind of the success story to date. But um, we think there's a lot more potential in the small molecule space, which we have yet to identify. And so our bottleneck has been shoving compounds through that screen, and we can only do about 200,000 a year at the moment. Ideally, you know, we'd like to do several million compounds, which would just be fantastic because, you know, then you've got a real chance at identifying brand new pathways, brand new targets, which we're just not aware of at the moment because no one has a platform for doing this in a systematic and controlled way. Have those compounds, those 200,000 a year, you try them in nematodes to see if the lifespan will actually increase. So you select those targets, the ones that showed promise, and then you test in mice yep. to see if they, they would work. Yeah, so we've de-risked this whole thing. So we've done this already in a pilot stage. We ran 60,000 compounds through. You know, we got 30 or so, which are, which are really good in terms of lifespan extension. And then from there... We chose the five best to put in mice. And we basically have, once we, we run this through the tiers, we have a one in four to one in five hit rate in terms of showing benefit in mice, which is extraordinarily high. And that's what gives us a lot of excitement internally that the platform delivers. And we just need to crank the handle. We've built this machine for discovering drugs which are potentially useful in aging. And we want to keep cranking that handle and identify new and better pharmaceuticals. And how do you decide about the targets, the targets that you're going to test like initially? We don't care what the small molecules are. We don't care what the targets are. We will identify what those targets are. And we've done that with some of the molecules which we've run through the platform. But um, generally speaking, we try and choose the library which we run through the front end of our platform with as much of an unbiased approach as possible. We're not targeting, for example, specific classes of kinases or phosphatases or anything like that. We want structurally diverse molecules which are hitting the pharmacology of aging 
in as much of an unbiased fashion as possible because we don't think we have enough criteria to say, okay, if we target this particular um, class of molecules because they've been shown to be beneficial in aging, we don't know that. We really don't know. So we want really broad diversity in the uh, libraries we're screening in our approach. And how long until you get something to be able to test in humans? That's a common investor question. <laughs> <laughs> so generally speaking, you know, if you put on your best case scenario hat, um, it takes us six months to run around. So, you know, if we were to run 60,000 or, or 100,000 compounds through our platform, that'll take somewhere between six months at the earliest, 12 months at the longest. Then you've got a great deal of, of testing and de-risking in terms of traditional indications for different uh, aspects of aging physiology, whether or not that's cardiovascular function, lung function, musculoskeletal function, brain function. You have to find an indication where you get some traction in an aging model. And then you have to tie it to a disease. And then you have to uh, tie that to the whole um, FDA approval process. And so, you know, you, realistically, you're speaking a minimum of three years before you can get into people in the best case scenario. Not unusually, it could be five years, but uh, I think a lot of biotech companies have been able to get into phase one within three years. What was one thing that, that you learned after starting your company that's more surprising to you? Um, there have been multiple problems along the way, all of which you could imagine, you know, in terms of our development. I guess the most surprising thing is what I've found in developing the Gerostate platform, I would say is our hit rate, which I've already told you what it is. It's one in four to one in five. That's crazy. I would never have imagined that once we had molecules come through our pipeline and put them into aging mice, that we would end up having like a one in four to one in five hit rate. It is really insane how high that is. And that means that the platform is extremely valuable in delivering candidates which have potential for further development in the clinic. And what people tend to, to misunderstand when you explain your company, people that are outside the aging field or the bio field and we're trying to explain to investors or lay people, what people tend to get wrong about what you guys do? Well, I think the, the, the most common one is that, you know, we're going to discover the fountain of youth, you know, which is... It's like, so you guys are going to have a pill. And, you know, I think the early breakthroughs in this area are going to be incremental. They're not going to be like dramatic. You know, uh, if you look at um, any of the, uh, the companies in this space, some of which are in clinical trials, you know, they're hoping to have a breakthrough in a specific disease of aging in which a well-characterized uh, pathway or process plays a role. And so you might be able to improve the outcome in that subset of patients, you know, who you're targeting. So the early successes in this area are not going to be like all of a sudden you're able to reverse the, you know, the appearances of, of aging, you know, by 20 years or something. That's not going to happen. At least initially, who knows what will happen in the long run, but initially it's going to be incremental, but there's going to be a lot of recognition by savvy people that this is the beginning of a flood. And there's going to be a flood of discoveries because where there's one breakthrough, there's going to be other breakthroughs. And it's going to be like a domino effect where you're going to see more and more investment coming into this area, more and more successes. And I, I would hope that 
the lessons of COVID in terms of therapeutic development and timelines will be applied across medicine in general. So we won't be waiting for five, 10, 15 years you know, for drug trial results anymore because people realize you can do it faster now, especially with the lessons of COVID. Do you think that the lessons from the speed that we needed to, to develop new vaccines would trickle down to other types of clinical trials to speed them up? I really hope that conversation is, is underway. I mean, I, you know, I don't know, for example, whether or not that is an active area of conversation within um, the regulatory bodies um, with regards to clinical trials. But I can tell you there are many diseases of aging where um, patients and researchers are sick of the prolonged periods of trials which are required in order to get regulatory approval. And it's not just the fact that successes or, or potential cures for a lot of these age-related diseases are being held up, but it's the fact that failures are also being held up. And we learn just as much from the failures as we do from the successes. Mm. And you can say the same thing about aging. There are candidate drugs and therapies in trials now, which I'm super curious to know whether or not they're going to work. Now, if they don't work, we can learn something from that and we can take that into the next round of things, but not if you have to wait 10 or 15 years for a damn result, you know? You're not going to learn much in, in that kind of time scale at all. But on the other hand, if you can somehow speed up the whole clinical trial paradigm akin to what the remarkable results from the development of the vaccines um, in COVID uh, have shown, then, you know, you've got a real shot at, at having clinical trial iterations every two or three years which would be really fantastic. I think that that's very much needed at this point in time. Yeah, and I think like the, the success of the COVID vaccines, it's like, like shows that it's possible to do things faster because it's a great success that everybody can see that it works because everybody is taking the vaccines, the cases are going down. It's a big, big win of like it's, faster. It's a huge win for science. It's a huge win for science. And it, I hope that lesson's being um, absorbed by the general public at large because many of them are going to be alive because of that result. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the recognition that science has enabled that, that means that, that it matters. You know, it matters when you, when you have sufficient investment in things where life or death is the outcome of that. And, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, having the ability to, to fly in planes which are well-engineered versus planes which are not well-engineered. There are consequences to having, you know, bad engineers in, in charge of plane design, the same way there are consequences to having, you know, good engineers in charge of plane design. So in one case, you get from, you know, Los Angeles to Sydney. In the other case, you don't, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I think the same thing happens with, uh, with medicine. If you have these um, poorly designed drug trials and, and, and so forth, then you just you get bad results. And I think there's lots of opportunity for designing good trials and in enabling science in a way where you get outcomes which matter. And that's what we want. We want outcomes which matter. And comparing like doing a deep tech startup in bio like, like we're doing to a like more common software startup, what are the challenges to think that are unique for you that would not be the same for a more traditional yeah, so that's a, that's an easy one. I mean, we went to Y Combinator, so we were, um, you know, uh, learning how to do a, a startup along with a, a bunch of other startups, many of which were quote unquote traditional, right? FinTech and, and, and so forth. That is um, 
one of the real disconnects which we had when we were going through YC was when you have a traditional company, you often have some form of returning revenue or reoccurring revenue pretty early on, actually. You know, many of the companies which we incubated with already had revenue, you know, um, not insubstantial, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases on a regular basis. And you would often get, when we were doing pitches for, for fundraising for Gerostate, we would sometimes go to an investor and the investor was like, well, when do you envisage making money? Well, we don't even have a drug yet, you know, so let alone, let alone um, you know, some returning revenue. So that is a big difference between more traditional startups, which are either involved in, you know, anything from, as I said, financial services through to, um, you know, various marketing type startups and, and so forth, is it's oftentimes the case that you can get reoccurring revenue pretty early in the process of building a company, whilst with biotech and particularly with aging biotech, which is real blue sky stuff, that prospect is not going to be there for several years at least. Um, maybe you will get some revenue when you go public. And we've got one notable example in that regard, Unity uh, Biotechnology, which, which launched, I think, around 2017 or 2018, went public. You know, it went from very small presence, actually incubating at the Buck Institute uh, in the, around 2011 or 2012, I think. And then um, it climbed pretty rapidly over the course of five or six years to a publicly traded company. And so they, they were able to accrue significant investment with no product, no drug, and eventually, as I said, they went they went public, um, and I think they approached well more than more than half a billion dollars worth of value, based on the promise of what they were doing. Now, can you imagine what a company will do if they have an actual product <laughs> which works? You know, I, I mean, when I'm I'm fond of saying when you're asked by an investor, "What's your target market?" Well, I, I like to say it's everyone in the room and everyone outside the room. You know, so that that's a kind of an un, unusual position to be put in. But but we we don't have any products, and so that that's a challenge for us as a company when we're trying to develop these things. And like this is this is really common with deep tech startups, in the sense that like if you're building like a new plane or a rocket or a new drug, it takes a lot of time in research the product to be released to get any revenue. How do you guys like measure progress? Because one way that usually people track progress of startups, how they are growing in revenue. Revenue is going to be delayed for a startup like, like yours, but how can you get some leading indicator of progress? How do you measure progress with your team? Like, Yeah, so we, we have our internal milestones are based around success, scientific success. So we set pretty hard goals for ourselves. We had to de-risk different aspects of the platform in the first two years of Gerostate's um, evolution. And, you know, there were scientific problems there and challenges there which were hard to overcome, and we overcame them. But that's how we evaluate our progress. And, in fact, we're, that's how we are growing the value of the company by solving those scientific challenges in ways which are robust and reproducible and add value to the company. And do you have any advice for someone that is just starting a deep tech company now? What would you say? I think given the success of companies like SpaceX, for example, which is just a terrific inspiration for everyone, you know, who's interested in these big things, you know, you can dream big. And if you've got the skills, 
and you've got the drive to make it happen, then go for it. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to develop therapeutics to slow aging and extend lifespan and health span. And that's a very big dream. You know, people say, well, you're a moonshot company. I often like to say, well, actually, we're, we're more like a star shot company. You know, we're, we're like, it's a really big, hard problem. But I think, you know, it's solvable. And we, we know it's solvable because we've been doing it in the lab for decades, at least in terms of um, being able to reverse aging and extend health span for, for our model organisms. So why not extend that to people? That's our kind of internal rationale. And, and we think it's completely doable. It's an unsolved problem with a path with many solutions. That's how we think of it. How do you think that society, a society in general, we could speed up technological progress? What do you think that we should be doing now that we are not to make the future come faster in terms of technological progress and innovation? Well, I think to some extent we're already doing that. And again, I don't want to keep you know using SpaceX as this poster job, but it is a poster job. It's a poster job. <laughs> I mean, look, look, look what happened with the innovation which came from private capital investment at a substantive level, I should say. And it's only because of the unique personality of someone like Elon Musk that he was able to get that investment and his success from PayPal and so forth. And he had some lucky breaks along the way. I mean, I've seen many interviews with Elon Musk, um, you know, where he talks about, I think, um, we were down to a, 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 you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but our last dollar, if, the, if the, the fourth test flight of the Falcon hadn't worked, they were bankrupt. They were done. And you can imagine how many similar companies are like that. They lack the resources to go to the next level. Um, it's not their idea is bad. It's just they don't have the resources. So I think having access to capital in a way which empowers you without necessarily being wasteful is one of the keys to getting this, this deep tech sort of um, approach viable in many different scenarios, aging amongst them. And what trends are you following in deep tech right now? What, what do you follow and then find most interesting emerging trends? Well, for sure, space. I, I'm a space nut. I love space. So I, I definitely follow a lot of uh, Elon Musk's stuff. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for Tesla. Uh, Tesla is doing amazing stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're a mainstream company now, of course, but they're incredibly innovative. So if you look at a lot of the stuff going on in the background of Tesla, That's also inspirational for any any company, um, I think. Have you seen the guys of, uh, I think it's called Relativity Space? Yeah, sure. And Rocket Lab, they're sort of similar. So, so Rocket Lab is 3D printing rockets, yeah, which is there. They're also incredibly impressive. So there's just a ton of this stuff going on if you dig below the surface. And But, I mean, you know, success begets success, right? So I, I think... Um, You know, we've seen in the last week, we've seen, um, you know, the, the um, launches of Branson and Bezos, right? Basically heralding the, the, the dawn of space tourism. Although it's a bit of a stretch calling it space, but still it's, it's you know, it's, it's something and which is going to be inspirational to, to many people. And I think, uh, you know, the engineering behind it is sound and they didn't die, <laughs> which is a big plus. <laughs> So I, I think, you know, this sort of um, appetite for large, formerly unsolvable problems is going to increase the appetite for investment in other unsolvable problems. And the big one on the horizon, at least for me personally, is, of course, aging. But you've also got climate change, which has to be tackled in a similar fashion. We've got to have innovation in that area, which is going to be transformative for the planet. 
because we're all looking down that barrel and that barrel is no longer at 2100 or 2200. It's coming very rapidly towards us at a much faster pace. So we need innovation in that area as well. That's something which I think everyone will be recognizing in the, in the next few years. In, in your field, like in bio and slash longevity as well, can choose one. What startups do you admire? Well, there's, a, there's quite a few um, disease companies, but I, I you know, hesitate to sort of like go down that, that rabbit hole because there's a lot of them. There are many, um, many of the CRISPR companies I, I like. Uh, I think that's another hard problem. And that technology, once that starts cracking things open, it's going to crack it wide open. But I can't really single out any one of them as something better than the others. Um, but as a, as a general kind of area, yeah, like the stem cell area, the CRISPR area, I'm very impressed with a lot of the stuff which is going on in that area. Although we don't have any real tangible success yet, but I think it's going to be like aging. Once the first one comes, there's going to be a whole bunch of them come. We are heading to the end, but I have these questions that I love to ask to everybody. First is, what are your favorite books? Well, I got many favorite books. Um, I was a big Michael Moorcock fan. He wrote a series of books about extremely long-lived individuals called Dances at the End of Time. I also like um, Neil Stevenson books a lot. So um, he wrote a bunch of them, which are real cool science fiction stuff. Um, big fan of the Dune books. You can tell, science fiction, you know, goes with the territory. There's a new movie of Dune coming up, though. Oh, I know. The trail looks amazing. Yeah, amazing. It looks amazing. I'm a big fan of Dune as well. Like big fan of science fiction as well. Yeah, check out the Apple series on Foundation. That looks amazing as well. Yeah, yeah, as well. Like, I was, finally, they're going to do a good Dune movie. It deserves it. It's a really great book. <laughs> it's really a special treatment. I'll take a look at the dancers at the end of time as well. And... To finish our conversation, if you had a chance to send just one message to every human on earth, what would it be? I could say something cheesy like live long and prosper. <laughs> you can say anyone, anything you want. Uh, that's pretty cheesy, though. I can't think of anything better than that. <laughs> this, is, this is a good one, though. <laughs> yeah. It's stolen, by the way. I didn't come up with that. Spoiler alert. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.